Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can live out your MasterChef dreams when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show, your home for open, honest, and provocative conversations. Hey, everyone. I'm Megan Kelly. Welcome to The Megan Kelly Show. And boy, do we have a good one for you today. We are going to kick it off without further ado with one of my old pals, Monica Crowley. Yes, she. we got to know each other at uh, Fox News for over a number of years. And then she went to work for the Trump administration, specifically uh, for the Treasury Department. And she's got thoughts on what we're going through right now as a nation when it comes to inflation, when it comes to the economy, which are the most important issues to the voters right now, but are getting precious little, if any, attention from our president and his administration. Um, This, and we're going to get to that one second, but this, as we learn new details about this awful hostage situation that happened down in Texas over the weekend, uh, which I will bring to you. Monica, thank you so much for being here. Megan, it's such a joy to join you and be back on the air with you, my friend. Congratulations. The show is a huge success and I'm so happy to be part of it. Thank you, my dear. I missed seeing your beautiful face and hearing your brilliant thoughts. And this is actually right up your alley. I mean, the news today, I was like, my God, we got lucky because it's tailor made for you. Um, Let's kick it off with what happened at the synagogue down in in Texas, about 27 miles outside of Dallas. And we're learning new details today on on the suspect for the for the audience members who do not know about the story or the specifics. uh, Basically, there is a there's a synagogue called the Congregation Beth Israel Synagogue. It's in Colleyville, Texas, half hour from Dallas. A man named Malik Faisal Akram for the from the United Kingdom, 44 years old, uh, came to America about two weeks ago, lived in a homeless shelter, then emerged bought a gun on the street, according to President Biden. That's what he said. And went into the synagogue. It's actually just so sad in a way, Monica. You know, it shows the goodness of those inside the synagogue. Um, This guy comes up. He knocks on the window. The rabbi lets him in, um, welcomes him, uh, gives him a cup of tea, sits down, have a cup of tea with him. And then the guy raided the services at 11 a.m. while people were praying for people taken hostage, 12 hour standoff. Eventually, the FBI, to its credit, killed the gunman and no one else lost their life. Okay, but the headlines today are and by the way, two others are now in custody over um, in the UK, two teenagers, they say, though. So the, the plot may be growing, maybe wider than just this guy, though, unconfirmed. Okay, they People are asking this morning how this guy got into the United States. Apparently, he did have a criminal history in the UK. Again, he's a 44-year-old man. He had a criminal history in the UK. um, And these tourist visas he was here on are supposed to be off limits to foreigners who have broken the law. Uh, And not only was he a convicted criminal over there, but they are now reporting that he was known to MI5. And he was the subject of an investigation as recently as late 2020. But by the time he flew to America, he was no longer subject to an investigation over there. So you tell me 
what he was doing in the United States and why this guy got a visa? So that's the critical question, Megan, and a full investigation has got to take place that is clean and honest. And we know that the FBI in recent years has experienced a lot of controversy and upheaval and tumult for very good reason. Uh, The FBI, at least at the leadership level, and some would argue even further down, um, has largely been politicized. And we also know that law enforcement at all levels, including the FBI, has uh, been um, sort of hijacked by woke philosophy and this woke culture. And you can't talk about certain classes of criminals because it's politically incorrect. Well, we know the result of that, and that is rising crime, rising events like this that could very well be part of an international jihadi plot because you do have these two individuals in the UK who've been arrested as part of this. So we know that when woke philosophy and thinking turns into woke action, particularly with the military and law enforcement, you have a serious problem. And Mm -hmm. this is the result of what we're seeing. So very, very uh, obvious and I think serious question needs to be asked. How did this individual get into the country where, as you point out, he had a criminal history in the UK. He was known to the UK intelligence agencies. The FBI so far has not indicated whether or not this man was known to them, but I think we can make a pretty good guess about that. So how did he get in? Well, Megan, what we do know is that one of the very first things President Biden did when he entered office was revoke multiple Trump orders of enhanced vetting of foreign nationals coming into the United States. So Trump put into place all kinds of restrictions to come in to make sure that foreign nationals were vetted in the most extreme kind of way. So we weren't letting individuals like this into the country. There's a reason why President Trump didn't have these kinds of attacks when he was president. So the question that everybody should be asking and should be central to any investigation here is, Was President Biden's revocation of those Trump era policies on extreme vetting of these foreign nationals, did that play a role in allowing this man in to commit this crime? Mm -hmm. Well, we we need answers. The FBI can't stay silent. Why are the British authorities speaking out about this guy having been investigated by them? But our FBI has said nothing. They won't confirm whether they knew or didn't know so far. And this is after they botched their messaging about this over the weekend, which we can get to in a second. But just want to stay on the latest for right now. Um, accordingly, according to um, the Daily Mail and the BBC, this reporting, MI5 investigates around 3000 subjects of interest and has about 600 live investigations at any given time. All right. So about 3000 subjects on their radar. This guy no longer was, but it wasn't so long ago. He'd been on there. There are about 40,000 closed subject of interest cases. Um, And the FBI will not say whether this guy was on our radar at all. So if he had recently been uh, investigated and had a criminal record, um, the question is, how? How could how could we not know? Because the tourist visa that he applied for and got, it's supposed to be off limits to foreigners who have criminal records. But Uh, What I read in the Daily Mail uh, is that and they had gone through sort of a a bunch of organizations to figure this out. We apparently do ask applicants if they have a criminal record and our website claims that we're going to check to see if they have undisclosed criminal convictions. But it appears we might not actually do it because we don't have access to criminal records in the UK's criminal database. So it requires coordination between the two governments, which 
I don't know if it happened here. Uh, there's a there's an MP over there in England saying um, there seems to have been a dreadful error at the UK and US borders caused by an intelligence failure and it has to be investigated right away. You know, Megan, every time we hear of an attack here on the homeland or, or even abroad somewhere in Western Europe, we all pull our hair out and say, how could this have happened? Well, now we've got a different context in the United States because we have a different president in President Biden. And he has chosen a couple of routes. Number one, a catastrophic withdrawal from Afghanistan, leaving Americans behind and creating a power vacuum into which the world's worst bad guys are now entering, including Iran, the Taliban, Al Qaeda, China, Russia, you name it. So that now is a staging of uh, area once again for these kinds of terrorists. Then you couple that with the wide open border and the kind of lax immigration policies that we're describing here in this context. And you have a recipe for these kinds of terrorist attacks within and on our homeland. That's point number one. Point number two, Megan, this is really critical. How many times have we said after an attack like this, I can't believe after 9-11, this is still going on. So after 9-11, we had the 9-11 Commission, and they had two major points that came out of that massive investigation. One was to get Western countries to work together to flag individuals and terrorist organizations so that they could, the, the UK, for example, could communicate with our intelligence agencies and flag an individual like this. That was number one. Number two, here at home, was to lower the wall between our intel agencies and our law enforcement agencies like the FBI. And once we stood up the Department of Homeland Security, that agency as well, lower the wall that separated those two so that they could more easily communicate about potential threats here at home. So after that, we were told that both of those things happened. Now, maybe they did, but maybe not to the extent that we need. I know President Trump really tried to resolve that and fix it and, and get it to a place where we weren't having these kinds of threats. But if those walls have gone back up, and if there is gross inefficiency in the way countries are talking to each other and intel and uh, and and uh, law enforcement agencies are talking to each other, well, that better be fixed, and it better be fixed stat because American lives are on the line. Right, because you have, as you point out, the Biden administration day one, uh, you know, Joe Biden rescinding these Trump executive orders that would have taken a hard look at uh, anybody with criminal past or it suspected to be linked with terrorists trying to get into this country. That's why MI5 was investigating the guy. It wasn't that that wasn't a pure law enforcement investigation. That's an intel organization trying to figure out whether this guy is up to a broader no good than just petty crime. And, you know, maybe we'll learn more from the fact that they have two people in custody over there right now. But um, the FBI's own messaging on this undermined public trust and and made you believe these guys don't get it. You know, are we more interested in being PC than we are in actually getting to the bottom of what could have been a horrific attack on this synagogue. I mean, I, I'll give the FBI agents on the ground credit for stopping this guy. You know, one person died and it was the shooter, the, the kidnapper. Um, but in any event, the guy who comes out and gives the statement, the first statement on this special agent in charge, Matt DeSarno, says, quote, we do believe this is Saturday from our engagement with this subject that he was singularly focused on one issue. 
and it was not specifically related to the Jewish community. But we're continuing to work to find motive and we'll continue on that path. Well, by 24 hours later, they had to reverse themselves because it was clear the man who stormed the synagogue, the Jewish synagogue, and held four people, including the rabbi, hostage while spewing anti-Semitic remarks um, was he did have anti-Semitism on the mind. And they knew that on Saturday because the guy had made clear he was there to get this Pakistani terrorist released from custody. She's being held apparently in Texas. Um, and, and her name is uh, Aifa Siddiqui. This woman's not good. Uh, she is currently serving an 86 year sentence in this Texas facility. She was convicted back in 2010 of attempted murder, et cetera, in Afghanistan. They called her Lady Al Qaeda. She was once on the FBI's most wanted terrorist list. Not unlike the guy who knocked on the synagogue window and got offered tea by the rabbi and welcomed in and then hurt the people who were praying. This woman came to America, was educated at MIT and got her doctorate at Brandeis. America opens its arms. We welcome these people. Right. It's like, come on in. And then she totally betrays. Right. She she got arrested in Afghanistan carrying sodium cyanide as well as documents describing how to make chemical weapons, how to make dirty bombs, how to weaponize Ebola. Preet Bharara, who prosecuted her, said she wanted to blow up the Statue of Liberty in Grand Central Station. She said, quote, I want to kill as many effing Americans as I can. What a lovely person. Then she attempted to shoot FBI agents and military men who were questioning her in Afghanistan. That got her convicted back in uh, the States. And at her trial, she demanded that all jurors and attorneys get DNA tested to make sure that there wasn't a drop of Jewish blood among them. So this is this guy's cause celeb. This is why he was in the synagogue to protest her incarceration. And we have our FBI and then the AP repeating the headline and quite a few running with. Well, we don't know what the motivation was. Well, it seems pretty clear. Yes. And we have seen this over and over again, like it's some big mystery, Megan, as to what their motivation is. Jew hatred, the hatred of the West, the hatred of the infidel is central to Islamist philosophy and belief, and frankly, central to Islamist, radical Islamist action as well. So we're all here in the West, 20 plus years after 9-11, still scratching our heads, at least publicly saying, gosh, golly, I, I can't understand why this person would act this way. Why would they target a synagogue? Why would they be screaming, screaming jihadi slogans and so on? It's pretty obvious. And you know what? It's obvious to the American people. They understand. They live through 9-11. They get it. It's common sense. And yet our law enforcement agencies, as well as our military now, to get to my earlier point, they they're shot through with woke leadership. They're shot through with this kind of woke philosophy that is damaging their mission. Their mission is to keep the United States, the American people, and America's interests safe and protected and to advance those interests whenever possible. Instead, they're so bogged down in, it's not even politically correct anymore. It's this dangerous Marxist control-oriented language and view that is actually undermining the United States from within. The AP got hit because they just repeated that FBI quote unquestioningly. And I understand as a as a press you know, member, it's not really your business to restate what the FBI stated. They're reporting what the FBI is saying. But uh, a dose of skepticism was in order given the circumstances that we were watching. And apparently early on on Saturday, they knew uh, this was about 
freeing this Pakistani terrorist who hates Jews. Um, so th- some of the reactions online were pretty great. Um, I'll give you one from Isaac Shore of National Review. He writes, sure, for all we know, the guy might have chosen a synagogue because he wanted to spend his last day on earth hanging out with Jews. Sure. Right. That's possible. And the absurdity of like everyone just going with, oh, no, it had nothing to do with anti-Semitism. Um, Kyle Orton writes, this is absolutely ab- absurd from the AP. In an era when the most micro identities receive excess coverage and the most innocent slight can be interpreted as evidence of bias, even a hostage taking at a synagogue doesn't qualify as hostility to Jews. It's part of a pattern. That's the truth. That's why people are being extra hard on them, because as Barry Weiss once said to me on this show, Jews don't count. That's what she said. You know, bias against every group matters unless it's whites um, and in particular Jews, because they just they don't rate. They don't count. And they also don't have like strong lobbying efforts with the with the press. And, you know, I would put Christians in that group, too. You know, Christians are very quiet. Christians take a lot of abuse. So do Jews. And yet they don't rate because they're not a protected class in the conversations we all have with the West. And and of course, you know, nobody wants to be called out for going after a protected group like, for example, Muslims. Well, does every Muslim, you know, put on a backpack full of explosives and blow things up or fly planes into buildings? Of course not. But you do have a pattern of behavior when you're talking about the radical Islamists that are driven by a specific philosophy. And you know, Megan, you cannot defeat an enemy unless and until you are willing to call that enemy what it is. If we can't even describe the true nature of the enemy, then we have no hope of defeating them. So the Michigan attorney general, uh, Dana Nessel, she decided early on that this case, um, even though it had already been reported that this guy was there to try to get this Pakistani terrorist who's all about hating America and Jews freed. That's why he was there. He was uttering anti-Semitic statements. He was at a synagogue. Hello. And had taken worshipers and the rabbi hostage. Knowing all that, she goes on TV and blames white supremacy. Okay, not Muslim, radical Muslim terrorism, but white supremacy. I think we have that clip. Uh, Let's listen. My biggest concern uh, hearing that it's at a synagogue is that this is um, someone who's intent on um, committing hate crimes and an act of domestic terrorism. We have seen an incredible rise uh, in rhetoric that is anti-Semitic being trafficked all around the country because we were seeing an exponential rise in hate crimes and an exponential rise in the formation and the membership of these extremist organizations, many of which are white supremacy organizations, and they traffic uh, in hatred against Jews and other minorities. If it does turn out that that is the motivating factor here, it would hardly be a surprise. She goes right to it. It's got to be domestic terrorism, white supremacists, extremists in this country. That's exactly what Joe Biden said, by the way, on Saturday. He said, we still need to learn the motivations, but I will stand against anti-Semitism and the rise of extremism in this country. Hello. He's not from this country. (laughs) Right, right. And he's not a white supremacist. What he, what she and Biden just did, which is what the left does constantly, is this dishonest and frankly evil indulgence in moral equivalence that that somehow 
Jew hatred coming out of radical Islamism is the same as maybe a, like one minor situation in the U.S. that law enforcement has to go deal with. It is not the same thing. The global jihadi movement is not the same thing. And yet they're constantly drawing those comparisons. And whatever white supremacist groups uh, exist in the U.S., Megan, and there are some, nobody is denying that, but they're not on the level of an international jihadi movement that seeks the wholesale destruction of the West. And so to equate those two and to say that they're both on the same level in terms of power and money and resources when the jihadi movement has entire nation states like Iran backing them, it is outrageous, it is dishonest, and it is turning Americans um, into the criminals, right, into the terrorists. That's what Biden's woke FBI is doing. That's what Merrick Garland is doing, whether it's with parents going to school board meetings or whether it's it's somebody going to a MAGA rally to support Donald Trump, whatever it might be that's done completely legally under the First Amendment, their right to peacefully assemble, their right to free speech, they're equating that with terrorism and they're doing it to lay the groundwork to actually come after us in a more aggressive kind of way. Mm -hmm. Don't know what kind of form that's gonna take, but trust me when I tell you, they're not saying all of this for their health. I do think they believe it, Megan, but they're saying it for much more nefarious purposes. We all need to be on guard and fight back against it. It's I'm worried for the people of Michigan that they have such a dumbass as their chief law enforcement officer, because it doesn't take two nickels to rub together in between your ears to realize that if the guy is in a synagogue protesting the imprisonment of a Pakistani terrorist known as Lady Al Qaeda, uh, whose main mission at her trial was to keep Jews from the jury and the lawyers pool, um, it's probably not the white, the domestic white supremacists here. Those folks don't generally protest the imprisonment of Pakistani terrorists. I'm like, um, it doesn't. OK, we doesn't doesn't take that big a leap. Let's open our minds to the uh, many other groups of criminals and bad people who are out there. Um, this one, again, who's now 44 years old uh, and killed by the FBI. So the investigation will continue there. I will say just for for, for the record, when it comes to the president, he was loath to pronounce a motive, even though we had those circumstances. And I was good with that. I don't think the president of the United States, whether it's Biden, Trump or Obama, who is probably worst of all at this, should be weighing in on these matters until we know what's what. The rest of us, the pundits can do it. The the FBI certainly should have had its facts straight and did within 24 hours. Um, but I like it when the president says, I'm not going to weigh in, you know, hope everybody's OK. We'll investigate. OK, we have so much more to get into. Uh, definitely going to get to Monica on if inflation now and the latest CBS News poll for Joe Biden. And wait until Monica tells you this is unbelievable. What she believes is the secret Hillary plan to be the 2024 nominee. I, at first, I was like, this is nuts. Then I read it. I was like, oh, my God, it's brilliant. I think she might be right. It's amazing. And it's next. Don't go away. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. 
Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. With me today is Monica Crowley, formerly of Fox News and the Trump administration. And she actually worked for President Nixon for a time, too, post his time in office, which uh, is another whole cool story about her four years uh, under his tutelage and such a nice guy. And actually, Monica, I didn't realize this. This is the first time I read this story about you, um, that when at, when you were going off to grad school, leaving President Nixon, for, then former President Nixon, 1994-ish, you asked him for to write you a letter of recommendation. And can you just tell us that story? Because it's cute. What happened? Sure, sure. So it was my first job out of college. And I got it because I took a little initiative. Megan, I know you're always talking about taking of some initiative. I read one of his foreign policy books when I was a junior in college, and it just blew me away. So I sat down and I wrote the author a letter. And it's sort of you know, one of the blessings of youth is you never quite uh, think about <laughs> maybe all of the consequences of your actions. I just thought, you know, I'm going to let this author know that he had really educated and inspired me by writing this book. So I wrote him a letter, happened to be the former president of the United States, never expected a response. But about a month later, I was getting ready to go back to college. And I went to my mother's mailbox and there was a handwritten note from Richard Nixon in my mailbox. Um, And that just set my entire life and career on a whole other trajectory. But when I started working with him, I realized I needed an advanced degree. And Megan, as an attorney, you'll really appreciate this story. I was set to go to law school. I was accepted at Villanova Law. I I was holding my place there, and I was just going to work for President Nixon for the summer, then go to law school. And one day he sat me down, and he took his glasses off, and he pointed at me, and he said, Monica, we have something very important to talk about. And I said, yes, sir, what is it? And he said, you're not going to law school. And I said, excuse me? (laughs) And he said, Monica, I'm a lawyer. The country has enough lawyers. We don't need another one who has no passion for the law and really doesn't want to practice. He said, it's clear to me that your main passion is American foreign policy and national security. So why don't you go to graduate school and study that instead? So, Megan, that was the single best piece of advice I've Mm. ever gotten in my life and career. Um, But when I was applying to graduate schools, I wanted my boss, my mentor, my friend, President Nixon to write me a letter of recommendation. And I was only applying to a couple of schools because I wanted to continue working with him. So I I was applying to Columbia and Princeton and a couple of others. And I came to him and I I asked him and he kind of looked at me with a wry smile sized me up and down and he said, kid, have a seat. (laughs) And I said, okay. (laughs) And I sat down and he said, Monica, I'm really honored and flattered that you would ask me to write this letter for you. He said, but given where you're applying, he said, 
I don't think a letter from me is going to help you. And in fact, I think it's going to hurt your chances. And that would be the last thing that I would ever want to do. So I said, no, no, Mr. President, no, no. And he said, go home and sleep on it tonight. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Come back in the morning and tell me what you've decided. So Megan, the next morning I came back, I thought about it. I prayed on it. And I said, you know what? You are my mentor. You're the former president of the United States. And most importantly, you are my friend. And I would be honored if you would write me a letter of recommendation. Mm. So he smiled, wrote me a beautiful one. And I ended up going to Columbia, getting two master's degrees and a PhD from there. I love it. So Columbia had no problem back then. That was probably a different type of Columbia than we ha- than we have today. <laughs> Just the fact that you'd been at Fox News would have de- eliminated you if you ever applied <laughs> there. Not that you had been at that young age. But in any event, uh, I love that story. And I love hearing story like he he was so vilified. Of course, all the president's men, these reporters today are still trying to get their all the president's men moment as long as it's a Republican in there. Never when it's a Democrat in there. Right. Um, That's right. But he did a lot of great things for the country. So I love that he was your mentor. Okay, Uh, Joe Biden, he's not quite in the trouble that Richard Nixon was at the end of his term, but he's in serious trouble. (laughs) It's not the impeachment kind, but it is the I don't get reelected kind. Um, Last week, we closed out the show by talking about the what appears to be, I guess, an outlier poll from Quinnipiac, putting his approval rating at 33 percent. Now there's one uh, from uh, it's CBS News slash YouGov, 44 percent approval. Okay, but let me just give you a couple of the line items in this latest poll. 50 percent of American voters say they are frustrated with his presidency. 49 percent disappointed. 40 percent are nervous. Uh, 62 percent disapprove of how he's handling the economy. 62. Uh, Inflation. How do they think he's handling that? 70 percent of the American public disapproves. You've been saying for weeks now, this is it. This is the issue. Hello. Hello. It's another version of it's the economy, stupid. Um, Do you feel he is focusing enough on the economy? 58% say he is not. Is he focusing enough on inflation? 60% say he is not. It, and by the way, um, how's he dealing with COVID? Uh, 64% of the American public says badly. So it's like it, COVID, the economy, inflation, they're frustrated, they're disappointed, some are nervous. And that inflation number of 7% year to year, which is a 40-year high, I, I, you tell me how he gets that down, because if he doesn't get that down, I've heard even top Democrats say he's dead in the water. Yes, I, I frankly think he's dead in the water now. Um, nothing is impossible in American politics. So comebacks are always possible. Rebounds are. But it would require a significant course correction by this president and his administration. And I just don't see that in the cards, Megan. Tomorrow, he's going to do a press conference. I can imagine that it's going to be largely scripted. I can imagine that most of the journalists in there are going to have to submit their questions ahead of time simply because it's clear he's got serious cognitive challenges. Uh, Most of the time he's confused and he doesn't he doesn't really stay on point. So I can imagine what you're going to see tomorrow is largely a show that's sort of been rehearsed, if not already well scripted. The problem is for him that all of the energy and activism in his party are on the radical left. So even if he wanted to change course, 
people in his own party would seek to undermine him and, and torpedo any kind of movement to the center. Remember, in 2020, he campaigned as a moderate, mm -hmm. which I didn't believe, but I guess a lot of people bought that act. They kept him in the basement, so he really couldn't be questioned that extensively. And so I think a lot of people expected that he would govern as a as a moderate, sort of the Joe Biden of his Senate years. And that's why you're seeing the huge drop in his numbers, because not only is it poor performance policy wise, their lives are not better. Americans lives are much worse than they were un under uh, Donald Trump. So it is it is a, um, a a direct result of their lives being in worse shape, but also the discrepancy between what they expected Biden to be and the actual performance as president. So you're seeing that reflected in the poll numbers across the board. And we can talk more about the economy if you want. Once inflation gets so entrenched as it appears to be now, Megan, it is a very, very difficult and painful proposition to root it back out. We saw it in the early 1980s when President Reagan uh, came into office. Inflation spiked. It was uh, completely out of control. And Reagan and his Fed chair, Paul Volcker, raised interest rates to like 18, 20%. You got a massive recession. It was extremely painful, but that was the only way to mop up the excess money in the system and rein inflation back in. They were successful, and then we got a booming economy. But that acute period of time where you have to go through some painful policies in order to get the economy back on track, it looks like that's what we're facing, and mm -hmm. that should worry every American. Here's what's crazy. If you're Joe Biden and you realize you're heading for a midterm election where you're, you're going to lose the House and you could lose the Senate, uh, and you are every day facing a more dismal prospect of being reelected. What do you do? What how do you shore up your numbers? Do you tout a voting rights bill that's got zero chance of passing? I wouldn't think so, but that's what he's done. Do you say I'm going to go back to get build back better pushed through? Well, let's look at that CBS poll I just mentioned. Is that what people want? Your opinion of Joe Biden would improve if he passes BBB. 76% disagreed. No, this is not going to improve his number. He, A, he can't do it. He's, he doesn't have the support. Joe Manchin's being that clear. Uh, but B, that's not what people want. They don't believe that that's going to solve any of their problems, and they're right. Uh, and then, or C, would you start touting police reform again? Because that's what he's doing. He's now planning executive action on police reform, though he hasn't said what. There's some speculation that's an attempt to build back up his numbers with black voters who supported him 78 percent in April. Now it's down to 57 percent. Black voters don't want the kind of police reform that Joe Biden's been pushing. They don't. The numbers show they they do not want defunding the police. They don't like the chokeholds and they don't like um, the no knock warrants. But the DOJ has already restricted that. That's done. OK, so they're already he's already cracked down on that. You ask black voters how they feel about defunding the police. Um, I'll give you here's a poll just out of Minneapolis where they tried to do this. Three quarters of black voters said the city should not reduce its police force. Black voters were considerably more opposed to the idea than white voter, vo voters were. Um, same thing happened in Detroit. Black respondents named public safety as their top concern. They ranked police reform 
last. The people who want to defund the police are Upper West Side white women wearing Lululemon who live in high rise buildings and don't have to worry about crime. What is he thinking? None of these things is going to move his numbers in the direction he wants. That's exactly right. And, you know, Senator Tim Scott actually put forward uh, last year or 2020, rather, uh, after George Floyd, he put forth a police reform bill that was very responsible, um, had a lot of really good reforms in there on the headlocks and some other things, and the Democrats killed it. So when you talk about these things, Megan, you have to understand Democrats right now, this is not the party of JFK or Bill Clinton. This is a radical party made up or at least driven by the revolutionaries Mm. that want a a whole revolution in the country. So they want to tear down the existing system, whether it's on police, military, the economy, you name it. They want a completely different country, what Obama once called the fundamental transformation of the nation. So when we talk about this stuff, it's not about policies that actually work for the American people, again, on the economy or policing or whatever. It is about power and control control away from you for them. You know, when you mentioned the uh, polling of black communities, of course, they want some reform, but they don't want a wholesale defunding of their police departments. Why? Because they're the ones bearing the brunt of rising crime, particularly rising violent crime. It's their communities getting decimated. They see it. They have to live it every day. Unlike the elite ruling class that talks about this in ideological terms and has the press then amplify those messages. So it's virtue signaling and power and control all mixed in one toxic, corrupt ball. Mm. So the Democrats are now starting to get scared about, forget 2022, about 2024 and the White House and what they're going to do, because they've got, you know, an aged president who you know, he, I agree with you, is facing some cognitive challenges. I heard somebody say it was a joke, but it was kind of funny. They said something like it's been a no good, horrible, terrible, very bad week for President Biden. On the bright side, he's not aware of any of it. (laughs) (laughs) Sad, but true. (laughs) Okay. So forgive me. It was kind of funny. Um, So you have a theory about how the, because we heard uh, Doug Schoen, say Hillary's coming back. She's gonna, She thinks she can do it and she's going to try. Um, and we've heard more and more people now. I bet we're going to hear from DickMorris.com soon um, that Hillary's coming back. And But you have, a, I think, a really interesting and plausible theory as to how they're going to do it. Explain. So thank you, Megan. I wrote a column last week in the New York Post and it's up at the New York Post and also on my Instagram at Monica Crowley underscore. So you can see it there as well. And I, you know, I have been observing and talking about this woman now for longer than I care to admit, (laughs) Megan. And I think I, I know her and her husband and how they think and how they operate pretty well. So I have noticed that Mrs. Clinton is giving a lot of interviews lately. She has also warned the Democratic Party against this radical embrace of of the far left, uh, the Marxists in their party and so on. 
Um, she also has been having her inner circle try to clean themselves up. So, you know, Bill might be beyond repair in the Me Too era, but he is still out there talking about the Clinton Foundation and their work. More, most interesting to me is Huma Abedin, who is her longtime confidant and assistant, who has now written a memoir about her life with serial sexter and General Lech, Anthony Weiner. She's given these sympathetic interviews. This strikes me as a cleanup operation, getting Mrs. Clinton ready for a new act, another chapter. And what I propose in the piece, which I realize is going to sound far-fetched, and it may very well be, and I could be wrong, but don't put it past the Democrats to say, look, we have a very difficult situation facing us for 24. Biden, nobody realistically believes he is running. He just, he can't. He simply can't physically, mentally, emotionally, and so he can't do it. Your vice president, Kamala Harris, is historically unpopular. Nobody can stand her. And remember, in the 2020 election cycle, she flamed out before a single primary. She was polling at like two or three percent among Democrats. Mm. And that's before the entire country got to know her and has rejected her. So if she stays and runs, she's going to sink like a stone like she did last time. What the Democrats might think about doing is moving Kamala out. She will not go quietly. So they'd have to make her an offer she couldn't refuse, like, say, a lateral move to the Supreme Court if they could get Breyer to retire. Not sure any of this is, is going to happen, Megan, but they would have to give her something lateral or a huge payoff to that get her That looks like out. a win. Right, exactly. Something better for her. And then move Mrs. Clinton into the number two so she could run as an, as an incumbent. That doesn't mean that Mrs. Clinton is not going to face some real challengers, and she will, like Stacey Abrams, for example, perhaps Michelle Obama. And it's going to be this identity politics feeding frenzy if this happens, because if they ditch the first black woman to be in the White House as vice president, they're going to have to try to make that up, you know, live by identity politics, die by identity politics. So she's going to have to bigfoot some of these comers like Stacey Abrams and perhaps some others. But don't put it past Mrs. Clinton. She still has a huge base. She's got a lot of fans out there, particularly among women. And I could see the Democrats and the Clintons working together to try to plot this out. That farming her off to the Supreme Court seat is the most brilliant thing I've heard. She's <laughs> of course, she came into, you know, onto the national scene first because she was this rising star attorney general of the state of California. She's been the top law enforcement officer of a state. Um, so she's, you know, presumably familiar with the law. And um and there's already pressure for Breyer to retire uh, because they don't want a Bader Ginsburg situation where they wind up with a conservative making the the choice. And she would be the first black woman to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, so think, I mean, it's just it's brilliant on so many levels. She's got to know she cannot win the presidency. Zero chance of her succeeding there. The Democrats definitely know that. So they cannot have her be the nominee. And Joe Biden, I mean, I, I think they'd rather run a Joe Biden who had been committed for that 2024 race than a Kamala Harris, because at least he's got a shot. She has no shot. So how do they get rid of her? How do you solve a problem like Kamala? 
you turf her to the Supreme Court where she might actually be all right for liberals. You know, they might like they might like what she would do up there. And then you replace her with your next best as Biden's number two, who then you're really thinking is going to be your number one. I think this is brilliant. By the way, uh, my team tells me DickMorris.com did say that there is a good chance of a 2024 rematch between Hillary and Trump. My head's going to explode. I know. It's insane. In a country of 330 million people, Megan, we keep reaching for the same people. Now, maybe they're the best that each party has to offer. We'll figure that out in a primary season. But I mean, I got to tell you, I think there's there are a lot of people around the country who would like to see the next generation kind of step up and, and take the reins. But none of those people is last named Clinton or Trump. Stand stand by. Actually, Trump said some interesting things about DeSantis uh, over the weekend. I'll ask you about that next. Uh, And don't go away because Monica Crowley is staying with us. And don't forget, folks, you can find The Megyn Kelly Show live on Sirius XM Triumph Channel 111 every weekday at noon east. And the full video show and clips by subscribing to our YouTube channel. Would you do me a favor and actually go subscribe there? We are, I think, 6,000 away now from 300,000, which is a good benchmark. We only started this thing really in July. Um, So it'd be great to get to 300,000. Help me do it. Go ahead and subscribe. YouTube.com slash Megyn Kelly. If you prefer an audio podcast, go ahead and subscribe. Download on Apple, Spotify, Pandora, or Stitcher for free. Uh, And there you will find our full archives with more than 240 shows. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley, in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Trump kind of going after DeSantis. I mean, Trump, it seems like he's getting ready to run. Who knows, right? He's very good at manipulating the press. So he, he we kind of tend to believe what he wants us to believe. But uh, knowing Trump, I mean, why wouldn't he run again? Right. He thinks he's going to win. He's obviously the most popular Republican. Um, and he came out this week and according to Axios, called DeSantis an ingrate with a dull personality, said he has no personal charisma. At the same time, Trump confidant Roger Stone calls DeSantis a Yale Harvard frat boy, not honest, not going to be president. Ooh. Then Trump says, you got to say if you've had the booster shot, it's gutless not to. DeSantis is the person I think he's talking about because DeSantis won't say. He says with respect to the booster when asked, I've done whatever I did, the normal shot. So unclear. Um, So, I mean, these two are probably the two, you know, most likely, right, that the, the names that most often get mentioned. So what do you make of it? Do you think there's a chance DeSantis could actually unseat Trump? if they both run for the nomination? Well, I have to say, as a lifelong Republican, Megan, who sees the country on fire, I really hate to see infighting in the Republican Party, particularly this far out from the presidential primary season and election. That being said, to answer your question, Donald Trump is still the 800-pound gorilla in the Republican Party. He controls the party. He controls the base. 
And he's got one thing that no other politician on the scene right now has, with the exception maybe of Barack Obama. And that is an emotional connection with his voters. Not talking ideological, not talking about a political connection. I'm talking about an emotional connection. So his voters really believe in him. They, I mean, this is sort of what January 6th was all about, that his voters looked at him and saw someone who championed the forgotten man and woman for five years, that he was there fighting for them and delivered for them while he was president. And they then saw a chance to fight for him, right? So Mm. in this dynamic now, He's got an emotional lock on the party, on the conservative movement, and on the base, the populist base. So if he chooses to run, he will be the nominee. If he chooses not to run, then the obvious heir to the America First movement is Ron DeSantis. The problem is that, you know, DeSantis has been hugely successful in Florida. He has shown every other governor, both blue and red, the way through COVID, through the economy, and so on. So he's got a tremendous track record to run on here if he if he does. Frankly, and and I know President Trump doesn't want competition going into the nomination if he runs. But I think competition makes every candidate better, including Donald Trump. Trump had like, what, 20 uh, fellow candidates in 2016. It made him a better candidate. Mm. So I say anybody who thinks that they have a shot at this and they want it, they should run. Because even if Trump ends up being the nominee, he will be a better general election candidate, having gone through that process and getting beaten up a little bit than if he simply got coronated. And by the way, that applies to the Democratic Party as well. I know. I think it's interesting because you never Trump. You have a very clear idea in your head of who he is and what he is. And you did even when he first ran. Right. It's like Trump's this larger than life P.T. Barnum type figure who's an entertainer and he's dynamic and he's great on television and he is a ratings machine. Um, And so he will collect a lot of attention. And we knew that going in. DeSantis, I don't know. I'm not sure. Trump, not in every single circumstance, but he's not bad at picking the one thing that's a person's weakness. You know what I mean? And for him to say dull, no charisma, I don't. I can't think of what DeSantis like sounds like. What's he like in a debate? Is he is he colorful? Do people want boring over Trump like they did when they chose Biden? I don't know. But I think DeSantis should get himself out there more if he doesn't think that label applies, because so far it's sort of like don't really have the clearest image of you and how you are on the, on the stump, have a very clear image of him. And um if he runs, I believe Trump runs. It runs. It's his. It's his. There's nobody who can unseat him in the GOP. Monica, what a pleasure. So fun talking to you. You too, Megan. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Come back soon. Um, and don't thanks. don't go away, because up next, we're going to be talking to a top Democratic strategist uh, trying out a new midterm. No, well, there, she's going to talk to us about a the new strategist trying out a new midterm slogan by telling Democrats it's not party leaders who suck. It's you. <laughs> That's next. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. 
Ashley for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that. Senate Democrats are pressing forward today debating voting rights bills. The move putting heat on Republicans in an election year, sort of. But it's also shining light on divisions within the Democratic Party. Joining me now to discuss that and much, much more, Brianna Joy Gray, former National Press Secretary for Bernie Sanders 2020 and co-host of the Bad Faith podcast. Welcome back, Brianna. Great to have you. Thanks for having me, Megan. Okay, so... um, Voting rights, we'll get to in one second. Uh, Something fascinating happened with Paul Begala on CNN that I've got to ask you about. I couldn't, this is like, it's almost like he knew about your podcast and (laughs) wanted to just serve you up your lead, right? Because when I thought of you when I heard this, like, oh my God, A, this doesn't seem like a winning message. And B, you're really going to tick off many members of your party, namely the the people who vote. (laughs) Uh, So here's Paul Begala talking about the problems with the Democratic Party right now. Do you think that's fair criticism? Did President Biden put more effort into getting infrastructure passed, for example? Well, he he got infrastructure passed, and that's a good thing because success can can breed success. He is putting the full force of the presidency behind it. I think the problem for the Democrats right now is is not that they have bad leaders. They have bad followers. Oh, boy. (laughs) It's not the president. It's you, Democratic voters. It's you. (laughs) What do you make of it? It's an incredible clip. You know, and it speaks to the tone deafness that's been running through the party for some time. The reality is that some operatives, many of whom I would say have outworn their welcome, that have been around since the Halcyon Clinton years, where they really did feel infallible at the ballot box, are still under the mistaken belief that they never have to interrogate whether or not their own behaviors are affecting the voter population. Look, Voters across the political spectrum are increasingly disaffected with politicians, according to polls. And it's no surprise when you look at the gap between what average Americans want, regardless of political affiliation, and what people in Congress want. And all the deadlock that we see under Democrats is the mirror image of the priorities that happen under Republican administrations that, again, are very disconnected from what average American working class voters want. Mm-hmm. It's not unlike what what was happening in the Republican Party before Trump, where you had like what's happening now with the Dems. You had this elitist, more establishment group of, you know, Mitt, with all due respect to Mitt Romney, Mitt Romney types um, who were, you know, sort of seemed perfect on paper to become president or, you know, be a leader, but really were not connecting with the masses, you know, with the Republican working class, the Democrat working class, couldn't get those Reagan Democrats back into the fold. Um, and then we had Trump come come on the scene and just completely blow everything up. And he did connect with them. And that's how he won. And now it's like the Democrats are the party of the elite, you know, the Harvard educated. We know better than you. And they don't seem all that worried like they used to be about how people are doing in the unions and whether they're earning, you know, a real livable wage and listening to their real complaints as opposed to being like, shut up and vote Democrat. That's what's good for you. Well, there are real structural reasons as to why this has happened, right? 
there is no party in America that is truly um, invested in the welfare and growth and strength of unions the way there used to be. Union rights were decimated over the course of the 70s and 80s by Republican administrations. And third way, neoliberal Democrats didn't do much to step in and save them in the 90s and 2000s. And so now one of the most powerful groups that could stand in defense of workers no longer has the political traction that it used to. At the same time, um, rules around the influence of money in politics have been corrupted to the extent to which the uh, polls show, a Princeton study from a few years ago showed that there is almost no relationship, none, between the preferences of American voters and politicians because the predominant preferences that are um, you know, tr- tr- expressed, that get through to politicians, are those from lobbyists and special interest groups. And mm-hmm. that's, not a, that's not helping anybody um, of any political party or affiliation. Yes. This is why it's funny, because I feel like people on sort of the Bernie Sanders team, you know, whether it's you or Crystal Ball or um, I just a big collection are kind of meeting the more working class Republicans and the Republican Party itself is becoming the party of the working class in a strange place. Right. Like strange bedfellows uh, are being formed here because it seems like now the Democrat Party has become the party of elite that doesn't really care about the Democrats love unions. They love the union bosses. They they don't care about the, the actual workers. Otherwise, they'd be handling it a lot differently. Well, I, be, I would be really clear about this. Republicans are winning no awards here. It's a it's a race to the bottom. And, well, the, and the Republicans hate unions altogether. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. So we, you know, it is important that at least under Joe Biden, you have, a, you know, an LRB that's willing to enforce labor laws, for instance. It matters in the labor disputes and the wave of strikes that we've seen across the country. It matters that Amazon is getting a review of uh, the Amazon um, workers, rather, are getting a review of whether or not their union efforts were unfairly tampered with by the corporation. You know, those kind of things matter. And that's why it matters to have, you know, Democrats in office as opposed to Republicans. But I don't identify as a Democrat. And part of the reason why is because, you know, better than the other guy isn't serving the people the way it should be. And the reality is, you know, I had a recent episode with Batia Angarsargan, who has written Love this really her. interesting book about how, you know, media, the, the way the media is covering um, working class issues has really uh, affected the way that uh, populations see themselves reflected in, in politicians. And she has a really interesting and important account about how the, the failure of kind of populist media has resulted in what we have today. But one thing that her studies and her charts in her book reveal is that there is an incredibly elite leadership on the right as well. Um, papers like The Economist and, and The Washington Journal have elite audience as well. And while they might have um, throw, you know, bow into identity politics every now and then, when it comes to core economic and financial commitments, they always align with the 1%. So what we have is two parties that talk about identity, that have these culture wars in order to distract from the extent to which both parties, leadership in both parties are ignoring the needs of the worker. Majorities of, of Republicans want a, a $15 minimum wage or higher. You know, Florida voted for a $15 minimum wage at the same time it voted for Donald Trump to be president by 60%. 60% of Florida voters wanted the $15 minimum wage. And as upset as I am that Joe Biden hasn't fought for it, I'm infinitely more disappointed in Republicans who are categorically ignoring what their base wants as well. Mm. I mean, I I am with you on the the need to take a hard look at why people who are working very hard cannot get ahead in this country anymore. The the diminishing American dream is a real thing. And we need to be honest about that and how systems need to change. Why do we have these like 
oligarchs like Jeff Bezos now, right? Like these these people at the top of these massive companies who are just swimming in billions of wealth while their workers are toiling away making crap. I mean, they have no lives. They can't see their families. They don't have good vacations. They don't understand why they have to sacrifice yet another day of, with their kids so that Jeff Bezos can have yet another home. I get that. I totally get that. But I also think I can argue with you about the minimum wage because I think that that leads to the destruction of jobs. I mean, we've seen it happen time after time where companies, especially with these inflation rates, say, I can't do that. Like I'm not my margins aren't good enough and I'm I'm not going to be able to make it back. And then I'm just going to have to eliminate positions like I can pay my two people fifteen dollars an hour, but I could have had ten at ten or nine dollars an hour. Well, when you look at how much money has been earned by our extremely productive workforce, remember, Americans have only gotten more productive over time. Over the last 30 or 40 years, enormous an enormous percentage, the overwhelming majority of profits from that productivity have gone to the 1%. Yes. So this isn't your, to your point about there not being enough money to go around. If the issue is that uh, CEOs, corporatists have been able to keep more profits steal more profits from their workers who are really doing the labor. Well, no, I agree with you. Like I, when I look at Jeff Bezos, I, I want him to pay as much as humanly possible to every Amazon where, you know, when I see these big corporations, but when it's a smaller business, I just think, you know, they're, you can't hit them with those kinds of minimums because their margins are too, just too small. Like the workers will wind up paying. Well, here's some, here's some other, you know, this is an interesting conversation because oftentimes these progressive issues are framed as being anti-worker and anti-small business. When the reality is, for instance, Having Medicare for all, uh, not making small business owners pay the medical costs for their insurer, insurers would be the single biggest boon to small business owners in the his, it, it, that, that exists, right? The single biggest cost for small business owners is providing health insurance for their employees. And if instead of having to have employers take it out of people's paychecks and then have Americans paying twice as much that, uh, compared to any other similarly industrialized country, for worse outcomes medically than other industrialized countries. We simply paid half as much as we're paying to health insurance in taxes for a program that is as well run and as admired as Medicare, i.e. Medicare for all. And that's an enormous business savings. And to your point about um, inflation, it's important to note that inflation right now is not being driven by spending at all. It's being driven by these supply side issues that are caused by COVID. And what's at the root of those? In part. Policies. In the 90s, it's spent so, it's spent so many um, of our jobs overseas so that we have to import so much. There's no more storage capacity here in America because everyone has tried to cut the margin so slim so that CEOs can earn and so that shareholders can earn and can be paid dividends at the cost of the American worker. And I don't, I don't disagree with that either. I, I don't disagree yeah. with that either. Yeah. Shipping all our jobs over to China uh, has had American workers pay real costs on a number of fronts. It's funny. You know, we do like... In no world could I vote for Bernie Sanders. I have to be honest. I don't think. But I agree. Whenever I hear you talk, I'm like, I agree with what she's saying. When I hear Crystal talk, I'm like, I agree with that, too. But then, you know, sort of taken to its logical extreme, some of these things, I'm like, that's where I draw the line. But I'm not a Republican and I'm not a Democrat, just like you either. I'm sort of like, who makes sense and who's reasonable? And I do see the country dividing now into people who are rational and irrational, who make sense and who don't make sense. And for sure, there is an elite's versus regular people problem that needs to be completely busted open. And it and it's it's manifest in my industry and in our, your industry more than any other. Right. And when it comes to government politicians and journalists, they're the least trusted among us because they all have their own skin in the game and the consumer knows it. Yeah, I think that's why you're seeing the proliferation of podcasts, independent media shows like Crystal Balls and Sagar and Jetty's really taking off. You see people like yourselves who have 
I had amazing careers in mainstream media, finding platforms and a, and a huge audience on, on YouTube and these other places because folks are decoupling from the cable box. I don't know anybody in my generation, I'm 36 years old, who has cable, really. Yep. And we're yep. all just watching the, the clips on Twitter to the extent that Paul Bettbegula says something ridiculous. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's partly because there's no, we're not reflected there. I remember at certain points during the campaign, certain folks who were um, pegged as the, you know, progressive spokesperson, the person who was going to speak for progressives on some of these mainstream news outlets, will call me and ask, hey, what, what do the progressives think about X, Y, and Z? What's, what's the line? Uh, and I would think, well, you could just ask me off. You could just ask what it is. <laughs> the thousands of people who are out here writing articles for progressive outlets, independent news media, all of these people who have these podcasts and this whole infrastructure, you could just let them on your network, but that's not how it works. And many of us have been officially or unofficially blacklisted and the viewers notice, the viewers notice that they're not reflected and they're looking elsewhere. You know what? It's funny because I live this to an extent at Fox News where um, so in the same way, the mainstream media doesn't like uh, the Bernie supporters and tries to keep those sort of non quote centrist voices off of the air. Uh, really, what they mean is elite. I mean, that's truly like the people who are going to protect the one percent are the liberals that they want on television. The, the same thing was happening at Fox, where Fox was very pro like Chamber of Commerce, you know, establishment kind of thing. And Trump, you know, this totally different animal came on the scene. And at first we didn't know what the hell he was for. Right. It was just like China, China. And you're like, well, OK, I don't I mean, Who knows? It, it came together and you came to know. But my point is that Roger Ailes at the time said we need to start peppering the air with not just Dem liberal debate. I mean, a Dem Republican debate, but with Trump supporters. It, that's a different thing. It's not the same as the normal contributors we have here from back then, let's say the Weekly Standard. It's a different way of looking at politics and our world problems. And we have to start. And a lot of people didn't like that. They were like, oh, yeah, they're go they're going pro Trump. It's like, no, it's a it's a different strain. Well, the liberal media would never do that. Right. Bernie, Bernie people are persona non grata on those stations. But I do want to say that there, again, is like a structural reason why that happens. It's not just that, you know, uh, Ailes is more open minded uh, than people at MSNBC or CNN. The reality is, that although Trump was very smart to speak in populist terms, and there are a lot of people on the right now who are really understanding that there's an appetite for a kind of economic populism in this country, that is purely rhetorical. We all saw that Donald Trump is no advocate for the working people. He implemented this tax cut 80, uh, for the rich, 85% of which went to the top 1%, didn't help a single working person in America, right? And well, wait, can, while, let me just ask. Let me stop you on that. Hold that thought, because I, I will say I was at NBC at the time, and um, they 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 made boatloads of dough on that corporate uh, tax cut, right? That, but yeah, they I, actually, I, but they did get a, give a lot of it back to their workers. They actually did give. I mean, there were a lot of companies that shared some of that with their workers. Not all of them, uh, look, but you put more money in the employers. Reality, yeah, go ahead. The reality is that in the 1960s, the average uh, pay gap between a, work, a CEO and a worker was 30 to 1. Today, it's over 300 to 1. So we can't have these conversations about individual outliers and what this person did or what that person did. It's, it's true that there's a huge systemic problem here that has been enabled by the changing of our laws to make it easier and easier for the millionaires and billionaires to get richer and for workers to have no rights. And the reality is that the reason that liberals don't allow any of um, the kind of Bernie voices on TV is because they're at the end of the day is an alignment between the interests of Donald Trump and the corporatists who have always been in charge, regardless of his rhetoric. And I would urge viewers to be really conscious of the fact that a lot of the people who are using a populist rhetoric right now 
when you look at their voting records, when you look at what laws they're trying to pass, when you look at whether they're actually advocating for material economic changes that are going to benefit their constituents, there's nothing there. It's all, you know, identity politics being played on both sides of the aisle to distract from the fact that there's a real simpatico between the economic elites in both parties. Mm, that's fascinating. I mean, I will say Trump, he studied the Rick Santorum book on how to win back jobs for the Emanu- American Manufacturing um, Committee or some either he studied it or somebody read it to him. Uh, but he, he became familiar. <laughs> He's not big on the reading of the books. Um, he became familiar with the plan. He's admitted that. OK, Trump people. Um <laughs> And he did try for American manufacturing. I think the trade war with China was, in his mind, a way of fighting back on on behalf of American workers. You can argue to the cows come home about whether it worked or it didn't work. But that was for them. Um, And the crackdown he would try to do orally, verbally, rhetorically, when our companies would move yet another plant out of the United States and Trump would try to shame them publicly into not doing it. Well, who was that for? It was for the United States. It was for the workers. Um, So there were a few, you know, I could go on, but he, he did try in a way that you have like I didn't see George Bush doing. Um, I think the Republican yeah. Party had settled in very comfortably to being more on a different level when it came to those issues. He was smart to do those things rhetorically. But if I recall the specific examples, there was a lot of bluster in a rally held to keep one factory's jobs in one town and then a bunch of policies that basically allowed a bunch of other jobs to be sent overseas when no one was paying attention. And that's what I'm saying. It's very difficult, especially for the average person who doesn't do what we do and like stay glued to Twitter and the news all day to mm-hmm. really follow the follow-up of what's going on. But when people feel like their dollar isn't going as far, when people feel like their wages haven't kept up with inflation, not just talking about this recent wave of inflation, right? But the yeah. fact that we haven't had a minimum wage raise since since uh, Bush was president. This is the longest period of time in American history since FDR got us a minimum wage in the 1930s that we haven't had a minimum wage. So I we're, really we're like- not talking about... It's separate and apart from that, though. Can I ask you separate and apart from that? Because I don't really like government mandates of telling private business how they must behave. I love a private business that says I will treat you well because it's in my best interest, because I want my workers to stay happy and, and well. And because happy workers are more productive, they stay longer. I get better work product. Then I get better customers. And my bottom line is better. And that, to me, is the problem with what we've seen with unions and so on. It's like unions were formed because employers weren't treating them people right. So they had to unionize so that they'd have more bargaining power. Then they did that. Then the people at the top of the unions, along with a lot of these Democrat politicians, totally sold them out. So the workers got screwed yet again. And now they're back in a situation where too many corporations in corporate America are screwing them over again, are taking all the spoils from their labors, shoving them in their own pockets to get their 15th home while these people can't even afford a vacation. And it's bullshit, right? I don't I don't know who the solution to that is. Um, But I think it's I think I think you're going to tell me it's not Hillary Clinton. (laughs) Look, I will not dispute that union capture is a big as a huge problem. But the problem isn't getting rid of unions or putting more power in in the hands of corporations. Unions are captured in part because of corporations. Like at the end of the day, the role of government, regardless of how big or small you think it should be, is to protect the people from impulses that are natural to capitalism. Right. It's right there in the name. I understand that people who follow this show or are big fans of capitalism, but it's a system that prioritizes profit over anything else. And that's not a subjective statement. That's literally how it's designed. And yeah. that's how our laws are designed. I, I'll say as a lawyer, that is literally how it works. So someone has to intervene on behalf of the workers and workers going on strike, realizing their labor power, really showing the country that they are the one that is making American rich. They're the one who built this, you know, mm-hmm. is a really powerful tool. And that's why we still have to 
protect and, and bolster and rehabilitate labor as opposed to thinking that, oh, it's flaws, we should throw it under the bus. Mm. But Hillary Clinton, let's talk about Hillary Clinton. Uh, well, 100%. I've got to ask you, I don't know if you heard, but Monica Crowley had this, I thought, like, crazy, brilliant theme uh, or idea on how the Democrats might be trying to might consider subbing her in. I'm going to squeeze in a break because that's a good tease. I'm going to leave it right there. Squeeze in a break. We'll come back. We'll talk about Monica Crowley's assessment of the plan to bring HRC back into presidential politics. More with Brianna Joy Gray in just a minute. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. All right, so Monica's theory, uh, Brianna, is that The Democrats, she doesn't think Joe Biden will run again. She thinks he's too old, that he knows he can't do it. Um, And so he's he's got to go. So what? So then what? She doesn't think Kamala Harris would ever be the real choice of the Democratic Party because she flatlined when she ran the first time. He resuscitated her by making her his VP, but that she's got even less chance than Joe Biden does of winning a second term. And so reading the tea leaves of Hillary, who (laughs) she did you see her? tweet over the holidays it shows a picture of herself she tweeted a picture of herself and she says 30 years ago this picture of her right like i don't know why she's picturing picking the very young hillary looking out to the horizon it's a profile shot and it starts with looking ahead to 2022 and it goes on a happy holidays okay so between that monica says huma abedin is out there cleaning up her public image hillary did that weird crying of her never read acceptance speech which i said at the time she's trying to warm up her image why maybe she's thinking about run again she says they're going to turf Kamala Harris to the Breyer Supreme Court seat they're going to convince Stephen Breyer to retire they're going to fill his seat with Kamala Harris who's a lawyer So it's not like, oh, my God, they're getting rid of the first black female vice president for this white woman, Hillary, to give her a great post. And then Hillary just slides right in there as the number two. Then Joe Biden. Oh, I'm not going to run. Hillary's the heir apparent. Go team Clinton. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I've heard stranger stories. I, I have heard, you know, Biden, I believe, promised to put the first black woman ever on the Supreme Court when he was oh, running. There we go. The rumor is. The rumor is, however, that it, it's supposed to be Sherilyn Eiffel of the NAACP uh, Legal Defense Fund, which I think would be a much better choice uh, for. Well, no one's arguing reasons. Kamala Harris would be good on the Supreme Court. It's a question <laughs> of where do you offload her? Yeah. So I, I hear that as a plan and I wouldn't put it past them. I think you're completely right to observe that she did extremely poorly in the Democratic primaries, that it wasn't clear why Joe Biden was picking her as a VP since black people never warmed to her. Um, one of my colleagues at The Intercept uh, wrote back when I was still there um, uh, covering the race that uh, Bernie Sanders outpaced Kamala Harris with black voters two to one, despite being unable to get out from under the idea of this Bernie right Bernie bro mythology. No one ever questioned why Kamala Harris wasn't able to capture the interest of any black voters who didn't literally go to college with her and pledge her sorority. So um, I can see that happening. Now, there would be some consequences for that because Sherilyn Eiffel in some ways has been quieter than I would have imagined on some of 
Biden's failures to come through on promises that he made explicitly to the black community while he ran. I don't know if you remember, there was that leaked call that Biden had with civil rights leaders last fall, uh, uh, right after the election, that very few people covered in the corporate media because it made Joe Biden look very bad. He basically spoke down to all of the senior um, black leadership in the country. Al Sharpton was on the call. Sherlyn Eiffel was on the call. Um, uh, his um, Cedric Richmond was on the call. Like, uh, you know, everybody was on the call. And mm-hmm. he basically told them, you know, blacks are out, Latinos are in, you don't have the numbers. I'm not going to listen to any of your concerns. <laughs> and Sherilyn Eiffel at that time and during that call pointed out a number of things that Biden could do using executive authority because it was before we had won Georgia, before the Democrats had, had mm-hmm. won Georgia and didn't know that they were going to have the Senate. A number of things Biden could do by executive order um, to advance the interests of people who were protesting all of summer of 2020. He completely dismissed it. And even after that, colleague, she said nothing. Everyone continued to run cover for for Joe Biden. And some people speculate that it's because she anticipated getting rewarded by Mm. being on the Supreme Court. And I don't know what kind of fur is going to start to fly if those promises start getting undermined and she's replaced by the extremely Kamala Harris, whose legal career um, and academic career has been much more you know, mediocre than Sherlyn Eiffel's or other people who have sat on the Supreme Court. Hmm. But what I mean, what do you think is going to happen on the Democrat ticket next time around? Do you think Joe Biden actually will run again? And if he doesn't or isn't capable of running again, they, they, they cannot run Kamala Harris. The Democrats. I mean, why would they do that? I know they're into identity politics. I get it. But I mean, why would they have picked her to begin with to be VP? I mean, truly. Well, if she was in like a, a spot where she wasn't actually even running anything as the number two. But now this is a for all the marbles. She'll lose. That's why they just give it to the Republican. Yeah. So all of the negative press that's been coming out about Kamala Harris that is coming from inside the house, as it were, is, is suggests that they are trying to set her up. I mean, people have been speculating about the fact that all of the negative press that we've seen wouldn't have been coming out of the White House unless the White House wanted to start to dampen her light, as it were. And there's also been all of the speculation about Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, what seemed like trial balloons uh, to see how the public would feel about them being her replacement. I mean, Amy Klobuchar was widely thought to be the VP pick until in the middle of the 2020 George Floyd protest. uh, And it came out that she uh, was um, the district attorney when uh, the police officer involved had committed another uh, act of violence against a citizen. And she had basically let him off the hook that it was too politically toxic to pick her in that you know, criminal justice reform environment. So now that time has passed and it's clear that no one's going to do anything anyway about criminal justice reform efforts, no matter how many millions of people come into the street, maybe they feel like it's safe to have someone like her come back. But I agree. I It seems likely that Biden's not going to run. I don't know if you've read the political article recently about whether or not there was going to be progressive challenger to Joe mm-hmm. Biden, which is something that I'm much more interested in as a progressive because I'm not interested in any of these corporatist neoliberals um, trying to shoot their shot. And well, I heard, but I heard you me- sounding you sounded pessimistic that it, that a third party challenger could really get it done. And I one of the things I wanted to say to you was, what about Trump? Trump was basically third party. Let's admit it. I mean, he was not a yeah. Republican. He wasn't. He came in there and he bent the Republican Party to his will. The Republican Party looks nothing today like it did five, six years ago. Thanks to him. So couldn't you have a Trump like figure? I don't think it's going to be Bernie, Brianna. I don't know. But someone like Bernie, right? Like with like with yeah. Bernie's ideas, but they have to have tons of charisma. He does. I'm not saying he doesn't, but I just has to be like a Trump type sharp. figure. <laughs> who, he does. He's got the mittens. Uh, I get it. Um, <laughs> right. Couldn't that happen? And and if it could, does anyone come to mind who, you know, who might 
fill that role, if not this time around, then next? I think it could happen. I am much less pessimistic on the issue of third parties and other people. I very famously, much to the chagrin of many Democrats, voted for Jill Stein in 2016 because I feel like that's what we need to do to break up the duopoly. I think regardless of how you feel about any individual candidate, people who are um, frustrated on both sides of the aisle, people who are politically independent, people who don't vote because they don't see themselves reflected in politics, need to figure out how to telegraph their um, political interest in a more concrete way than just not voting, voting for the other party or sitting it out. And that is a third party, which is why I'm so interested in people like Andrew Yang, who have started this forward oh, party yeah. push, which is not just a third party effort, but a part an effort that says, let's look at ranked choice voting, right? Let's look at voting, uh, getting rid of first past the po- post voting. So neither party can claim, oh my gosh, you're running as a third party, you're gonna be a spoiler, you're evil, you're hurting democracy. No, if we had ranked choice voting, then if your first choice doesn't get 50% of the vote, your second choice vote goes to the whoever is left and there's no spoiler effect. And so the Democratic Party's biggest battering ram, which is vote blue no matter who, oh my gosh, you're going to let Trump and fascists in, is no longer an excuse for them not to actually act on behalf of the people. So I'm interested to hear mm. about what happens with the forward party. And the political article mentioned Marianne Williamson and Senator Nina Turner, who was mm-hmm. Bernie's campaign co-chair. I have no idea if any of those people have actual interest, but I'm very interested to see what happens uh, in the next year or so. Yeah. You just had her on, right? Marianne Williamson. She's fun. Yeah. I mean, we had a great <laughs> interview. Um, and I think that she is probably the last person left standing on the left who hasn't betrayed some of the fundamental progressive ideals that made people really like Bernie. And I think there's something kind of funny and this um, parallel track that she has with someone like Donald Trump, who was seen as an outsider and seen as someone who was advocating for the working classes, despite himself being very affluent, obviously yeah. a billionaire. Now, Marianne Williamson yeah. is obviously not a billionaire, but she is someone who has been very successful in a different lane in the same way Donald Trump was as a New York Times bestselling author who millions of Americans know from her long career in that kind of um, spiritual space. And, you know, something we're talking about on the left a lot is with all the divisiveness, with all of the infighting across party lines, and even within the Democratic Party, I think America could use a little bit of dose of that kind of return to spirituality and community and figuring out how, especially in this time of crisis, we can all get through it together. So I'm very interested to see and hear more from her over the course of the next year. Mm, a return to spiritual. Uh, all I can think of is Trump. Two Corinthians. Two Corinthians. <laughs> Holding the Bible upside down in front of the burning church. <laughs> but you know what? Republicans, they used to care about that. They don't care about that anymore. They, I think they, the Republicans, they, they, well, first of all, they wanted somebody who could fight. And Trump is 100% that person. He was not going to lie down for Fox News, for the establishment, for John McCain, for anybody. And they love that about him. Um, yeah, I don't, I, th- I think they've learned you don't really necessarily get, need to get your religious leadership from yeah, the White although House. Yeah, I'm not religious. I'm, you know, I'm not a religious person. And, you know, Marion Williamson is kind of a, a secular Jew, but, uh, it's the spirituality. It's the feeling of disconnect people have. It's the everybody being quarantined in their little apartments or in their homes, not maybe going to work or to school as much as they used to, and and not feeling a sense of identity with our American community and what it means to be part of a society and what we owe each other and how we can help support and protect each other during mm. this time. I like, I'd like that. to see a little bit more of that. Yeah, I, amen. I hear you on that. I mean, there's so many things 
you know, pushing us apart, not just presidential politics and and regular politics, but the iPhone, but COVID policies, Mm -hmm. you know, just the way we've chosen to live, getting rid of the bowling leagues and we don't go to church anymore and we just don't see one another. We don't live in these communities that where we interact with other humans as often as we used to. I think it it takes a real toll. It's one of the reasons why people are so depressed now. Um, And by the way, on that front, can I just sometimes I just make a note of something I just want to raise. It's not necessarily your thing or my thing, but like the CDC's most recent guidance. I hadn't actually taken a look at all of it. You know, when it came out on January 6th. Do you know that they're saying we should ban football, banned and all high risk sports and extracurricular activities where there is a high transmission rate, which, by the way, is right now 99 percent of the country. OK, so they don't want banned, no banned, no extracurricular. And listen to this. one. So I'm like, well, what is what's the high because they say high risk sports and extracurricular. What, what do they mean? High risk extracurricular activities. I'm quoting here are those in which increased exhalation occurs. <laughs> Screw you, CDC, such as activities that involve singing, shouting, banned ex- or exercise, especially when conducted indoors. This is exactly what America needs to be doing. Our kids need to be outside singing and shouting and playing sports and exercising and Breathing as heavily as they need to to get those things done, not more distancing, more freaking out and more avoiding things that keep off extra weight, for example, which is a serious comorbidity. Well, I, I don't know that I would advocate for anybody getting into a room and start singing with each other, <laughs> but certainly a certain degree of outdoor activity. Look, I, I'm someone whose mental health requires that I exercise every day. And it's been difficult for me now that it's gotten colder, even in D.C., it's too cold to run outside for me. And so at a certain point, I had to make the decision to go back and start running on the treadmill in my gym. And I go during odd hours. I go late at night, you know, in the hopes of being the only person there. And I'm certainly breathing hard. I wear a mask. Everyone's required to wear a mask in the building. But there are going to be certain kind of trade-offs. And I understand that there's a healthy skepticism of the CDC recommendations because from the jump, they have been politically motivated. As a Bernie mm-hmm. as a Bernie uh, campaign worker, uh, I remember when uh, my predecessor on the Bernie 2016 campaign, who worked as Biden's spokesperson, Simone Sanders, got on TV right after a CDC recommendation that came down on um, the Ides of March on right after the last debate on March 15th and said it's completely safe. The CDC says it's completely safe to go and vote because there was an interest in the Democratic Party and getting people to vote and pushing Bernie out of the race and ending it early. Whereas, in fact, the CDC had hours before just issued a recommendation that it wasn't safe to go into a ballot booth. Uh, It wasn't it wasn't safe to go into a room of more than uh, 50 people or more, which is basically any polling station in most metropolitan areas. Right. And the back and forth about the masks and the back and forth about so many things has caused Americans to be really skeptical about who they should listen to and have to rely on their own common sense. So I think that's mm-hmm. another reason why it's important for us to have a sense of community because we do have to take care of each other. We do have to act as responsibly as we c- we can to help the spread because there are more vulnerable populations among us. Kids are getting hit hard now, but no, they're not. in the way that wasn't the case before. There's no, long-term effects being understood and it's it's a tough time. Kids are not getting hit hard. Kids are getting Omicron at an increased rate the same way as adults are getting Omicron at an increased rate. It's it's Omicron spreads irrespective of vaccination status and so on. That's what that's what the right. CDC is now saying. But right. these numbers that they're claiming about child hospitalizations are overstated. And even Rochelle Walensky admitted that. So, I mean, I don't like when people use kids as a, an example of this, I get very upset because well, they're using just... our kids. Not you. I'm not saying you, but I'm just saying yeah. the politicians are well, using look... children and trying to scare parents parents into bowing to their policies. And it's not right. Most of those kids are in the hospital with COVID, not because of COVID. 
Well, let's talk about, it's not even the hospitalization rates. For me personally, as a young person with no comorbidities, I fear getting COVID, you know, knock wood, I feel like I'm the last person in America who hasn't gotten me yet. But I fear COVID in part because of the long COVID system symptoms. And it's not, most people don't have them and it's relatively rare, but as someone who uses their noggin professionally to the extent that I do, I have friends who have experienced brain fog and some of these, some of these issues. I already am a little uh, ADHD and have some focus issues. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I think it's natural for people, especially when something is so new and misunderstood, especially so misunderstood in kids because it hasn't been an issue for kids up until Omicron, really, and in significant numbers, to want to just be as careful as possible. Now, there are trade-offs there. And I think that part of the fight over school closures and all of that stuff is that both sides have very legitimate concerns. Part of the issue is that in America, the only affordable childcare for most families is school. So of course, families are going to be frustrated about the idea of having to keep their kids home while they have to go to work and there's no paid leave. There's no alternatives for everybody. People are, are crunched. At the same time, even parents who want their kids to go to school, I think in an ideal world, would like their school kids to be going to school in a safe environment where they don't get even the common cold, much less oh, COVID. No. And so that's we not realistic. I was with you until there. It's, that's not realistic. <laughs> uh, your kids go to school, they get the flu, they get stomach viruses, they get weird things like in Patego, whatever. So, suddenly they've got a sore on their face. You're like, where the hell is that from? Um, stuff happens. At school is part of life, right? And we accepted this up until recently. It's just, it's life, you know? And you go out there and generally, you, the goal is to have your kids get a bunch of shit when they're little so that they build up their immunities and it doesn't come back to haunt them when they're grownups and they're maybe maybe not as well positioned they, to fight it. But not shit no, that you can bring home and kill grandma with. That's all. It's no, not that but it's we're, the- we're done with that. Brianna, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. Listen, I'm a mother of three children. I've been living this for two. Not the worst, but that we should all be trying to act with as much um, consideration and calm. This is this is my point about having a sense of well-being for your fellow man. No, I don't agree. (laughs) I don't agree. I don't agree. I did it. We did it for two years. For two years, my kids, my little eight-year-old, he was six when it started. He was actually five because he was about to go into his uh, next birthday. uh, Has a fucking mask on his face, and I want it off. I want it off. He's he's not an, an effective vector of this virus and if he were i would keep i would keep him away even even now not believing that about him i keep him away from my 80 year old mom because she's in a more vulnerable position but my mom isn't leaving her house my mom's scared about covid but but he's in second grade the second grade i've done my part for two years how long does he have to have the mask on his face five ten i I just graduate with it no some people's 80 year old moms live with them and they don't can't afford sorry for them they're gonna have to make a different arrangement i did it for two years and i'm done but they can't, they can't afford to make it. And that's the point. We live in a country where 40% of Americans- Sorry, Brianna, but we can't live like that. We can't, a lot of people can't afford to have their kid get the flu right. and, and, and bring it home to grandma because you can die from that too. 40% of Americans can't survive a $400 emergency. There are families routinely who live in one or two bedroom apartments, multiple they've been generations. Given, and their they've been given trillions, trillions of dollars by the federal government to help them through this. And now they're going to send out, Bernie, your guy wants to send out three masks per family. Okay, great. Do that. They're giving away the vaccines for free. That's good too. We have many mitigation measures that they can take. The best is social distancing. That can happen in any school. Um, but I'm done with the masks. If you want to put your kid, not you in particular, but people who love the mask want to put their I kids in the mask. I know, I know. So they can go for it all day long. You can put the duck mask on or an N95 or a CAN95 over it. God bless. And by the way, the doctors, well, there was just one on, from Harvard on CNN the other day saying that more and more the, the, the medical information is that you putting a mask like that on your face will protect you from what you're trying to pre- prevent. Uh, I don't have to do it to my kid. Normal is maskless. Normal is without the mask. We're starting to see masks as the norm and they're not. And they're damaging to children. They're damaging. 
Yeah. Well, look, I don't have a child, so I don't have a dog in this fight. But I do have parent friends who are parents who, you know, are home from work. You know, their productivity is being affected because their kid caught COVID at daycare, gave it to the whole family. And now they're not able, you know, they're they're home. Everyone's getting it. They're not allowed. You're going to get it, too. Everyone's going to get it. Omicron's just too contagious. Look, knowing, believing realistically that there are going to be some bad downstream effects, I don't think is an excuse not to be trying our best to support the members of our community that are more vulnerable than someone like me who can stay home. We've done that. Or someone like you whose grandparents can live outside of the home. No. All I'm saying is that- For two years, we have done that. We shut down society. We closed businesses. We ruined people's lives. Now it's time for focused protection. Keep the vulnerable away. Keep them at home. Yes, be careful. I don't, I wouldn't let my kids go around my mom right now because of Omicron, but there is absolutely- Absolutely no reason for my little ones to have those masks on their face or for somebody else to be telling me I have to stick a needle in their arm when they, they don't need that. That's that's not going to prevent them from spreading the disease, even if they get it. Look, I'm a libertarian socialist and I have some skepticism and concerns about mandates broadly as a general measure. But I also think we wouldn't need as much mandated by the government if we all had a little bit more of a sense of community. That's all I'm We're, saying. Americans I would like have done so much, Brianna. They've done so other. much. We're two years into it. They have done their part. It's so ungenerous to say something like that. They... I've interviewed them. They've lost their entire livelihoods. People who have built, you know, chains of restaurants or chains of hair salons, done, gone, in the dust. I had a friend who had built a great dance company helping young girls who were trying to turn their lives around. Over, done. They're not, you can't dance now. They're not going to let you do that in New York City. You can't be together in that way. Oh, I mean, we could go on, right, about the 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 amount of carnage. what I would like and what Bernie was advocating for before the race dropped out was the kind of recurring stimulus checks that could help people afloat, that could help people have rental relief so that when they have to close down their buildings for a time, for a period of time, they don't want a government check. They don't want a government. See, that, that's where we disagree. That's why I can't. We don't want a government check. They want to build. They want to run and, and, and the business that they what? built. Megan, Walmart and Amazon and all of those companies got a, a, a check. The the American so, Rescue Plan was the largest single upward transfer of wealth in American history. All the I'm big gonna, businesses in America got a bailout for COVID. And it's small business owners like the ones you're describing and your friend whose business was shut down. My mom is a small business owner. I'm a small business owner. We didn't get the PPE funding. Right. So there is there is already socialism for the rich in their country and not for the poor and working class. And that is the issue. The money is already going out the door. It's just not going to you. So I think we share sympathies here. But mm-hmm. I think the reality is we have to keep an eye on the ball of who exactly is the enemy and who exactly is causing all of these conflicts of interest between parents and teachers and workers and employees. It's not the small business owner's fault. It's not the employee's fault. It's the people who are not putting together the social programs that could relieve the strain that's coming down on the 99% and instead funneling all of these tax dollars, funneling all of this money to bail out the millionaires and billionaire class. That's always how it's been done in this country. And we have to stop. I don't know. When it comes to COVID policy, I don't agree with you. I mean, I would say, I'll say this. I wish teachers got paid more. I really do. I I, yes. I wish most of our, work, our working class got paid more. It's bullshit how hard people have to work for so little return, especially up against inflation like we're seeing and so on. But even before that, I, I mean, I, I do feel for teachers and when it comes to their salary, because they do work hard and they've had to work hard over the past two years in most districts. But I'm I'm not I don't you know, they signed up for it. I didn't make them become a teacher. You signed up for it. You get the summers off. Most of us don't. Now get back into the damn classroom and do your job like that's that's the way it has to work. I didn't make you choose your job. You volunteered for it. Now go do it. You get a paycheck. That's how you get the paycheck. You do the teaching and the kids have suffered long 
enough. I stole the last word, but I love the way your mind works. And I love how weirdly it was like tense, but then we'd come back to areas of agreement. It's like, I'm having so many feelings, Brianna, but I learned. And that's my favorite thing about an interview like this. I enjoy this as well. We'll have to have you on Bad Faith Podcast and we can talk a little bit more about why you would never vote for Bernie Sanders. I think we can can work around that. (laughs) Maybe you'll get me. You'll probably convince me just as he's no longer in it. (laughs) Thank you. All the best. Thank you. Later this week, we've got Goldie Hawn and we've got the guy from Social Dilemma. Don't miss him, Tristan Harris. Thanks for listening to The Megyn Kelly Show. No BS, no agenda, and no fear. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can host the best backyard barbecue. When you find a professional on Angie to make your backyard the best around. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Inside to outside. Repairs to renovations. Get started on the Angie app or visit Angie.com today. You can do this when you Angie that.